So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Welcome to Conspirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Remsky. I'm Julian Walker. And if you would like to find us online, check out conspirituality.net. That is our website where we stream out to all major podcast providers as well as Spotify. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conspirituality podcast, as well as on YouTube at youtube.com slash conspirituality. And we are on Patreon, patreon.com slash conspirituality, where if you like our work and would like to support and get bonus material, you can find us there. So today's episode, the anti-vax agenda with Imran Ahmed. A recent report by UK's Center for Countering Digital Hate found that anti-vax organizations reach 58 million people on social media. The total amount of money spent by anti-vax groups and advertisers targeting their followers on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube is roughly one billion. The majority of the money funding the most prominent anti-vax groups is by just two men, osteopath Joseph Mercola and fund manager Bernard Seltz. All of this makes you wonder, why is so much money being used to target anti-vaxxers? Today, Derek interviews Imran Ahmed, founder of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, about how anti-vax leaders and groups are using social media to target and recruit followers. The stakes are higher than ever, as the vaccine argument has transcended autism and is threatening to endanger public health during the pandemic. I consider the vaccine fears of parents, as well as the shadow of the Tuskegee syphilis study and how anti-vax alliances are targeting black communities, which could be a disastrous Trojan horse for COVID-19. Matthew serves up his week in conspirituality segment in the epilogue, looking at how the leader of the high demand group he was indoctrinated into over 20 years ago, led by Michael Roach, is rebooting old content as a COVID era grift. I'm looking forward to that. I want to start today by saying that I'm a new parent. 
uh, I have a two-year-old daughter. She just turned two in April. And her entry into the world was very, very difficult. My wife spent 10 days in the hospital. I spent most of those nights in the hospital with her. And the baby was finally born about six days in to a very difficult process by C-section. My wife had to be knocked out during the C-section because she was in so much pain. And so I got to sit in that operating theater all masked up and watching, uh, having not slept at all the night before and been in the hospital with my wife for multiple days and see my daughter who had the cord wrapped around her neck, brought into the world blue, barely breathing, very weak heart rate. And I watched this incredible team of doctors basically bring her back to life, take that tiny spark of life that was still there and resuscitate her and, and bring her safely to us. She had to be in the NICU, in the intensive care unit for babies uh, for several days thereafter. And then they said, you can take her home. And then they said, no, you can't take her home. She's having seizures. So it turned out Isabel had had a little stroke right before she was born and she was having seizures and they needed to do a 24 hour video feed with, with uh, electrodes on her head to figure out what was going on with her brain. And she turned out to be okay. She needed six months of anti-seizure medication for the first six months of her life. And so I just wanted to share that because as a parent, I would never want to do anything that would endanger my child. And I know firsthand the, the fear and just the emotional intensity of a situation like the one I just described. So I can only imagine as a parent taking my child to the doctor to get their vaccines, to get their shots on the schedule, being a good parent, doing what everyone has told me I should do. And then within a number of days or weeks or months, my child starting to develop an, a rare autoimmune disease that at first was hard to diagnose or some kind of neurological disorder, having seizures, perhaps starting to show signs of autism. And I can also imagine how once that happened, if I started to get in touch with other parents who'd had similar experiences, if I started to find activist websites where hundreds of articles were very well organized, showing the incredible dangers of vaccines. And I got to get involved with a community of people who were actively trying to make sure that other parents and babies, children, didn't go through this kind of experience. That would be a very powerful, life-changing set of experiences. So I just wanted to start today by saying, I, th I think I kind of get it. I, I get how fear about vaccines and how the perception that vaccines are incredibly dangerous can spread through communities. At the same time, I'm really interested in the science and I'm interested in what the data actually shows. And I'm interested in how all of us, all human beings are prone to various mistakes in reasoning, various kinds of cognitive bias, and ways in which we, we might get it wrong. So that's where I wanted to start from today. And I, and I thought I'd go into a few examples and, and also some facts and figures on this particular topic. Uh, either of you guys have anything to, to share at that moment? Well, well just thanks for um, opening that way. And um, I, I resonate with your, 
birth experience. Uh, ours, mm-hmm. ours weren't as extreme, but, um, you know, not only did the birth of our children, the births of our children, um, uh, in, in hospital give us, um, you know, an incredible sensitivity towards the stress around endangerment that, you know, parenting and, and the fragility of infancy and new parenthood, new motherhood especially can bring. Um, it also, I, I want to add to that, that it also uh, sort of reaffirmed my understanding of public health, especially in a country that provides socialized medicine, mm-hmm. as an incredible mitzvah that people get together and provide for each other. Like the amount of expertise that rushed to our aid uh, was extraordinary. I mean, at any given time, we had hundreds of years worth of experience uh, in the room doing very complicated mm-hmm. things and, and, and helping to make sure that, that people were safe. And it happened with, uh, with all of the strange alienations of uh, the clinical space, all of the antiseptic surfaces and all of the weird protocols that you're not used to. But it also happened with an incredible degree of uh, empathy and care mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. at all corners. I just remember. Mm-hmm. I remember there was always some moment where somebody who was doing something very technical with something was also able to smile at me through a mask uh, and to convey that. Uh, well, yes, I've seen this before, uh, yeah. and this is um, this is this is this is something that that we're equipped to deal with, and we want you to feel comfortable. And uh, I don't know. It just uh, it it. Having come from a wellness culture that was sort of constitutionally allergic or or had this antipathy towards biomedicine, these yeah. were very powerful experiences of what happens when a lot of people get together and go through very complicated uh, processes for figuring out what works and and yeah. they do it and they do it because they want people to be to live uh, yeah. they want people to be healthy and so and so um I, I'm really glad that you opened that way. That that uh, and and I can really feel the stress of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And and we had a very very similar experience to what you just described in terms of just an incredible. I mean, when you stay on the on the maternity ward for uh, that many days, we we met all of the nurses who worked on that ward. We met all of the doctors. Uh, half of them seemed too young to be there. All right. of them were smart and, and kind and uh, incredibly respectful in how they got consent from us and informed us of you know, various options and, and choices at different points along the way. It was incredible. Right. Yeah, I want to add thank you for sharing that because I was not aware of the depths of that. As a non-procreator, uh, <laughs> I don't have that emotional understanding because it's something I haven't and most likely will not go through in my life. But I did work in an emergency room for two years, and I've seen the best and worst of how people can act in in tough situations. And that's something that's often lost in this argument about or debates or whatever you want to call it about vaccinations is that being pro-vaccine does not mean there isn't an a level of empathy or understanding of concern for the, the birthing process in children. And I do want to just point out one data point 
in that 1900, around the, just at the turn of the 20th century, uh, over one third of all deaths in this country were children under five. And by the turn of the 21st century, that number was just around 1%. Mm-hmm. And so when you just look purely at data like that and think about the emotional toll that so many deaths took place of, of children under five and how two things, which are vaccines and antibiotics, mm-hmm. completely changed that and drove population charts upwards as never before, I think that is a very important space where you can look at both scientific data and the emotional connection that parents have with their children and understand that how those connections work together. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In many ways, it's, it's not just on vaccines, which, you know, I'll be open that my opinion is they're, they're sort of, they've, they've been a complete game changer in societies that have medical infrastructure uh, I, th- I think it's all, all medicine has created its own kind of uh, cultural impact where so much of it has been so incredibly successful that no one remembers what it used to be like. Mm. We don't have living memory of, of infant mortality rates that were that high. Yeah, so, I mean, I have to ask, my, I have to ask my, my mother on a regular basis what it was like for her to remember receiving the polio vaccine mm-hmm, in 1956 mm-hmm. uh, and, how, and how the summer before, you know, they, 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 they had closed down water fountains and uh, nobody was allowed in swimming pools and so on and everybody was terrified. And, mm-hmm. and then they were, they were absolutely uh, over the moon with, with uh, relief uh, mm-hmm. to, have that, to have that sugar pill. Uh, and to realize that uh, no no family members were going to be exposed anymore. So that's that, that's actually still in living memory, uh, and and I'm not quite sure why it has disappeared uh, mm-hmm. from a certain political demographic. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Let's let's cover some of the uh, some of the key fears that I that I've come across a lot in looking into this issue, and I know you guys have looked into it too. Uh, the first one is is ingredients. Right. So if you talk to, to people who are vaccine hesitant, they'll say, well, you know, I've seen these lists of ingredients. Have you, do you know what's actually in vaccines? Like, how could you put that into your child? Uh, ingredients can sound really scary if you just read them off the list. There's a, there, there are, are all sorts of uh, ways that people have illustrated our, our fears around chemical sounding names. Like you can ask people if they, if they think uh, dihydrogen monoxide is something that should should be in our food, and they say, "Well, no, that sounds like a terrible chemical, right?" But it's water; it's the, it's the chemical name for water. So, just as one example, um, when we read things off a list and we see long chemical, hard to pronounce names, that can be scary. And then when we see the names of ingredients that we recognize and have negative associations with, that can also lead to confusion. So, the first one is aluminum, which I grew up calling aluminium, but I see that you spell it differently in the United States. <laughs> aluminum is in vaccines. And I've heard people say, well, why would you put metal into a vaccine and inject it into a, into a poor baby? But the thing is, aluminum is a naturally occurring substance. It's in our air, it's in our water, it's in our food, it's in mother's milk. The average adult ingests seven to nine milligrams of aluminum per day. And they would need, depending on their weight, uh, at least 10 times that before toxicity risk. 
Yeah, so, so if, if you weighed more, you would, you would need even more than that. But if you, weighed, if you weighed roughly 150 pounds, you'd need 10 times what we all just naturally ingest without trying every single day. There's one milligram of aluminum in the vaccine and it's entirely safe, it's natural, no ill effects at all have emerged from the research. Sometimes there's an increased redness at the site of the injection, but nothing beyond that. Can I add that it's also in fruits and cereals? Mm -hmm. And one, since we're on metals, I just want to point out that one amazing thing that I've noticed on social media this week because of the hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine doctor mm -hmm. episode that, that happened is people, and known, people that I know are anti-vax are coming out and talking about the importance of zinc. So, right. you know, right. <laughs> there's just an obvious example of how we pick and choose depending on yeah. where we're, yeah. where our yeah. focus lies. Aluminum sounds terrifying, but zinc is, is wonderful. Zinc can protect you against all things, right? As will colloidal silver, right? Colloidal silver is another one that's, that's touted as a big antiviral and antiviral. Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it, really, um, it really conveys the power of the... Uh, the the term is repeated through a particular culture because that's right uh, zinc, zinc zinc as you know um, uh, added to lozenges or uh, mm -hmm. to, to sunscreens although I don't know if that's if that's uh, not not advisable anymore I'm not sure but I mean mm -hmm. uh, zinc as a an additive uh, mm -hmm. has been part of dietary and supplemental culture for a long time colloidal silver in certain uh, demographics has been thrown around for 30 or 40 years. Yeah, and, so, totally. and so it's, uh, but I mean, when, when you say aluminum, I think of, you know, dinky cars produced in China that I don't want yeah. my child to put in their yeah, mouth. Exactly. And so, and so, yeah, it's, it's, we've got these sort of like networks of semiotic connections with particular, with particular elements and metals that are probably running the show more than we think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so the other one that you hear really frequently is thimerosal. Thimerosal is the big one. And that's because thimerosal is a form of mercury that was used as a preservative in vaccines to prevent microbial contamination. And they used about 25 micrograms, which is roughly the same as what we would find in a three ounce can of tuna. However, the very important distinction is thimerosal is, is a form of ethyl mercury. The, tuna, the, uh, the mercury that you find in tuna is methyl mercury. Methyl mercury is toxic. Methyl mercury is not processed well by the body at all, and at high doses is, has neurological problems. Ethyl or causes neurological problems. Ethyl mercury is processed very quickly by the body and is nowhere near as dangerous. And so when you just see there's mercury in vaccines, thimerosal is this, is this horrible, danger, dangerous thing. Don't you know that mercury is toxic? These things tend to all get collapsed together without making any of these distinctions and without recognizing it was a tiny, tiny amount. Public concerns and activism around the fear that that mercury might be related to autism, even though the symptoms of mercury poisoning have virtually nothing to do with the symptoms of autism. Like there's, there isn't overlap there. There's right. just this assumption, this is unnatural, this is toxic. Maybe this is the culprit, this is causing autism, even though all the research showed that thimerosal had absolutely no link to autism whatsoever and had no serious adverse side effects when it was used in vaccines. But because of the activism, it was taken out of vaccines in 2001. And there have been you know, hundreds of thousands of studies on kids that, that showed that that 
wasn't even necessary, but it was done as an answer to this sort of misguided and, and well-meaning activism. So, so is there are there are there a lot of instances in which vaccine recipes are altered in order to decrease vaccine hesitancy rather than to improve the actual quality of the product? Uh, no, just that one that I'm aware of. That was right. a big one um, because of the concerns of mercury. But in general, no. And it is important to point out that every vaccine is different, right? There are different right, right, ways. Right. Yeah. So, so they have to figure out the proper ingredients that go in each one. Yeah. And if we're talking about preservatives, walk in a supermarket and look almost any package and tell me what you're eating on a daily basis. If you're eating any processed food mm -hmm. and you can understand the process because it's the same thing. They need to preserve yeah. the vaccines when, then there's a whole conversation about live or non-live vaccines, but yep, we don't need to right. get into that now, but um, they're just, they're just different ways of preserving. And sometimes it works. And, and I would argue that, the food supply is a lot worse in terms of the stuff that's going into your body than anything you would ever get from one vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. So, so to my next point is cherry picking. And this, this sort of goes with the whole idea of how, how do you assess whether or not a particular claim is true? And people who, who have gotten involved in the anti-vax movement that I talk to, and I, and I wanna be respectful of these people, which is why I started the way that I did, Typically, they've come across information on websites where there, there are whole caches of, of links to all of these studies that are, are supposed to show that the, that the claims of the dangers of vaccines are real and that there, there is actually evidence for it. So you find there's a kind of uh, flip-flopping, walking of the line a little bit there, where on the one hand, you can't trust science, all the science is corrupt, Big Pharma just wants our money and doesn't care about our safety. If any negative results are found, they're suppressed. And of course, there are examples of corruption where that has happened uh, through, throughout medical science. But I, I wouldn't say it's the rule, and that's very important. It's, it, it's the exception. Um, on the one hand, there's that rejection of scientific method and of the possibility of finding out what's true. And then on the other hand, there's cherry picking different studies that are used as, no, look, I have the science, right? And so the difficult thing about that is usually these links go to PubMed. And the important thing to understand about PubMed is that it's just a big archive. PubMed archives all the studies that they can that have been published. Some are from really reputable journals. Some are from journals that were created by activist groups who are doing their own research uh, specifically to show what they want to show who are funded. In fact, if you want to talk about corruption, you're more likely to find corruption in these small activist group based journals where doctors who are on the fringe, who've not been able to get published in reputable journals that are well peer reviewed and that are respected within the scientific community have gone and created their own journals and say, we're going to publish here and we're going to give it a name that makes it sound very official uh, in terms of the specialty that we have. And so, A, you don't always know about the quality of those studies. And B, when you go to a big archive like PubMed, you'll see all of the different studies and they will contradict one another. You just spend a little time on PubMed and, and search different search terms, you'll find all sorts of contradictory information. And the reason for that is, is that science is continuously updating itself. There's a, there's a timeline around any particular subject where things evolve and you have to look for the scientific consensus and you have to look for the analyses of multiple studies that have then led to what ends up being the landmark study that everyone in the scientific consensus refers back to. So just having, you know, 10 studies you can point to on PubMed that prove uh, any particular theory you have is, is not actually 
a strong argument once I'm you understand really, more about that. I'm really glad that you picked that apart because just in a few sentences, it makes it clear what the sort of epistemological problem there, the, the, yep. like the, the, the I'm going to do my research problem yep. there is, is that is that, okay, so you're talking about a website that's just a catalog that like Google will search for keywords, but yep. not... Uh, the kind of meta-analysis of the latest moment that tells you what most epidemiologists believe about a particular thing. So, so, so somebody might be quoting. I mean, I've seen a lot of studies passed around about you know the impacts of the effects of uh, hydroxychloroquine on one version of SARS, but the papers from 2008 or something like yeah. that. And I'm wondering. And and people. I mean, I don't. I'm not. I don't feel qualified to read that or to understand what sure. it's actually talking about. And so. Um, but somebody will always pop on and say, hey, that's not really the same virus or, or that's, that's misapplied or yeah. something like that. But if the person is relying on that gateway to find that paper, that's what they're going to come up with. Well, it's, it's even worse than that, too, because if you are not a trained scientist, as none of us are, right? Right. I've just tried to inform myself as best I can. When you look at any study, when you look at an actual research paper, what do you do? You read the abstract. You read the first part that says this is what we this is our hypothesis. And we're going to try and demonstrate it. And then after that, there's all this technical stuff that's actually really difficult to weed through and understand right. if you don't get the jargon. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just it's statistical and it's and it's jargon filled. And most and people so, are sharing studies based upon the titles and abstracts is what you're saying. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they read the abstract and they say, look, there it is. And it has this logo at the top and it's a it's a scientific paper by these doctors. And they also don't generally don't bother to then look into the doctors, right? Into the, into the research, whoever's been doing the research and what their history is and have they had papers retracted and are, have they been flagged as being someone who has a particular agenda that is outside of the consensus, right? Well, that's oh, so also what real. I wanted to, sorry, Matthew, what I wanted to bring yeah, go up ahead, go ahead. about if you are new to the process of reading journals, yep. here's my method. When I'm writing an article or I find a journal entry, the first thing I do is I look at the journal before I even look at the researchers mm -hmm. and I find out who's funding the journal. Because there was a while where I was doing pieces on acupuncture and looking into the efficacy mm -hmm. of acupuncture and PubMed is filled with journals that are sponsored and funded by TCM groups. And they are not going to publish anything that shows that acupuncture does not work. And now, if, right. you don't, now, so if you don't know that, if you don't know about yeah. that process, it's, it, it can seem like it's legitimate. And that's really important. And does, the, and does the sheer volume of the TCM funded studies or the TCM biased studies mean that uh, they will have sort of preferential placement in terms of the search engine terms that, that PubMed is using? So with the terms, uh, one of the ways that it's sussed out and Google Scholar does this as well is by citations. Mm -hmm. So right. when someone <laughs> cites it in another paper or in an article and it links back and they find the citations, that will usually, that's the algorithmic <laughs> uh, alchemy that will help a lot of the articles achieve prominence. Yeah. Right. But but so 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 numbers of citations might indicate um it it could indicate a kind of consensus forming around Absolutely. the validity of Absolutely. the research right but but is that are people able to able to game that as well if they cite each other's bad papers 
Uh, no, I mean, well, you, you would have to, I mean, one thing, I, I don't know if this exists, but to go and find all of those citations, right? Because a lot, a lot, especially Google Scholar, which I use for say sociology studies, there's always right. a lot of citations with that. And if you think about like Daniel Kahneman's work, it always has tons of citations. Now, am I going to, if it has 3000 citations, am I going to then go and try to find all of those? Of course not. Yeah. So, but I mean, that's a respected, you know, war debated, but his work is very respected. But when you're talking about the world that we're talking about right now, it's people aren't going to, even the step that I said, looking at the journal, a lot of people aren't going to do. So then if you're asking them to go to down the rabbit hole and find citations, right. It's beyond what most people are going to spend their time doing. They're going yeah, to at, at the top line. Yeah, it's really it's it's great because this previews uh, your interview coming up with with Imran because what we're talking about is is a data problem. Yes, mm-hmm. right. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it would seem, I mean, it it sounds like data engineers should be figuring out if PubMed cares, uh, they should be figuring out how to what how to rank based mm-hmm. upon on on consensus shared. Well, like what, what would it be? The thing is, Matthew, it's, it's a new problem, right? It's, right? it's the new problem of the information age. It used to be only, only scientists looked at, at journals, right? right? People who are in the field. So it's for people who are in the field and it's, it's, uh, it's not organized to be, to be a database for um, civilians to, to figure out what's true. It's, right. it's, you know, that, that, it's, it's a weird thing. It has to do, I think, with the, the mistrust of science and the mistrust of institutions. And so even more, you know, d- down that road, there are people who will say, well, you can't trust any of the science. I just trust my experience and I trust my story and I trust the stories of all these other people. Let me send you some videos. Let me send you some articles. Here are all of these people who have had terrible experiences and they're convinced, for example, that the MMR vaccine causes autism. So th- th- this one is quick. It's that anecdote is not evidence. And the scientific method is the way that we have figured out to try and understand if our anecdotes mean what we think they mean, and that the plural of anecdote is also not evidence. No matter how many stories people have that they have all interpreted in the same way, it's still just a starting point for research to find out if their if their reasoning is sound, if it really does prove what they think it proves. So I think this is really difficult because personal stories like the one I shared at the top are emotionally engaging mm-hmm. and and I, I i bet that most people who you know who are not absolutely callous who heard me tell that story identified with me and had empathy for me and right along with me would want to would want to fight to protect my child's well-being so how to maintain an empathic uh receptivity to people's real life stories while maintaining the understanding that okay the anecdote doesn't necessarily prove what is being claimed on a scientific level, even if there are lots of anecdotes like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can, find, you can find people right now on the internet who will swear up and down that they've seen Bigfoot, that they've been abducted by aliens, you know, that, that any, any number of different conspiracy theories and paranormal claims, they're, they're, you can find hundreds of, of anecdotes that appear to demonstrate that it's true. Nonetheless, there's no scientific evidence for any of those things either. So it's, it's just it's just tricky territory, and it and it, it does come down to uh, to epistemology and on on what basis we make claims. So parents, especially right now, and this goes to some stuff that we've covered 
quite a bit so far, uh, especially around Pam Popper and Christiane Northrup. Um, there, there is this political movement that wants to frame vaccines around freedom of choice, right? That there, there should be no oppressive governmental uh, imposition or mandate of vaccines. And so the argument kind of goes a little bit like this. Well, Julian, if, if your daughter is vac vaccinated and you believe in vaccines, that's fine. I don't want to stop you from following your heart and what your research tells you, but why do you care if her playmates are not vaccinated? Surely only the unvaccinated kids are at risk, so let us take that risk, right, and assume personal responsibility for it. And the problem with this is that not all vaccinated kids remain immune. There's a percentage, I don't know it off the top of my head, but there's a percentage of kids who will be vaccinated and be protected for a certain amount of time, but for whatever reasons, because we live in an imperfect world, they may not remain immune. Uh, some kids cannot be vaccinated due to contraindications that have to do with their medical conditions. Very young babies can't be vaccinated. The elderly are also vulnerable to several different diseases that, that, if, that we could pass on to them if we are not vaccinated. And the thing is, your unvaccinated kid can be part of creating chains of infection that eradicate herd immunity. And this has already been happening around the world and in the United States with measles over the last few years. So some facts on that. In the 1960s, there were roughly 3,000 cases of measles per million in the United States. By the 1980s, because of vaccines, 13 cases per million. By 2000, one case per million only a total of 911 cases in the 11 years from 2000 to 2001. But 2019 had the largest number of cases since 1992 with 1,282 cases in the United States alone and 128 hospitalizations, all in communities that had been influenced by anti-vax activism. And this is where we get into the MMR vaccine. Yeah. So the thing about herd immunity is that it works. Uh, herd immunity eradicated smallpox from the planet entirely in 1977. And we wanna keep that going, and especially, especially in the times that we're in right now, getting to a point where we have herd immunity from COVID-19 is, is going to be essential if we wanna get rid of it. When you said you don't know the percentages, they, there is no specific percentage. It changes okay. for every disease, right? Just like herd immunity, herd immunity, the percentage of people that need to be infected or inoculated for every disease is different. They peg mm -hmm. it at around 70% in general, but yeah. it, it, depends on, it depends on how deadly the disease is. And mm -hmm. in fact, deadlier diseases have a lower herd immunity just because they tend to take out the person quicker. So it doesn't have much of a chance to spread. Yep. COVID-19 is the opposite, right? Because the death rate is somewhere around 1%, we can argue either way in a few percentage decimal points, but because it seems to be around there, but because of how infectious it is, it's probably going to have a higher threshold for herd immunity. And what is especially insidious about this particular virus is the long haul survivors they're being called, the people who four months after are still mm -hmm. showing 
heart mm-hmm. damage, neurological problems. And you could have a case here where you have a virus that can actually affect a certain pop- part of the population where they have lifelong problems after. And we don't know that yet, but considering how long the recovery time is for people, it could actually turn into something like that. Yep. Can I go back to um, something that you said earlier, Julian, which yeah. is that um, I, I've noticed this. I was glad that you articulated it. Um, with regard to people doing civilian research, mm-hmm. uh, but also uh, whipsawing between uh, science isn't to be trusted, but here mm-hmm. are the studies that I want to show you. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I, yes, I've seen this happen over and over and over again. It's really, really difficult for, I would, I would describe myself as a civilian who respects the scientific process, generally trusts that it's, that it's percolating along the way it should. I don't have any reason to believe that, you know, people are acting nefariously or slowing things down. Obviously, there's going to be like financial corruption uh, with regard to, to the products of medicine, and that's going to be higher in the United States where, where everything's privatized. Uh, but like, um, the, the, what do you think drives this contradiction that people are able to uh, hold, uh, which is, which is uh, I don't trust science, but I want to show you the study that I found. Like, is that, is that a transitional argument that people are making out the door when they maybe don't have to, uh, on the way out the door to not needing scientific papers whatsoever? Are they just doing that on, 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 on behalf of, of the fact that they're talking to people like you or? Yeah, I think, I like, think that it's, it's confirmation bias. And it's, it's basically, I, I don't trust the science, but when I come across an article or I come across someone posting a study that proves what it is that I think is true, yeah, then I want to say, well, all you people who claim to be scientific, and that's the reason you don't believe me, look, I have a study here that proves it. So, yeah, and yeah. then it combines with, uh, you know, you, you, the accusation of, well, you say that you respect science. Why aren't, exactly. you, going to, why aren't yeah. you going to take my PubMed citation seriously? Yeah, and so then it's turnabout, right? You're actually right. the one who's in denial of the science. You're actually right. the one who's, who's been uh, brainwashed by, by the corruption, et cetera. Right, right. And, and I, what is so frustrating about it is that if you are a civilian with a certain amount of humility around it, uh, yeah. around this process, it's not like you can counter uh, um, the the citation of bad science. Uh, it's very difficult to anyway. I I, I hesitate to even try to do it. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but anyway, yeah. Side issue. I was talking to a friend yesterday who asked me what I felt about the Oxford vaccine, the study that came out, and my response was, I wish that we were in an environment where no study would be released publicly until after phase three. Yeah. Right. So when, when, and that's another thing I said, journal, where's the journal and how is it funded? Another piece of this is study size. When you are working with a study with 12 people, that's a pilot study that, that that's even before phase one. That's just like, Hey, we're going to test this out and see if we want to continue trials. Mm-hmm. 
phase three, the phase three uh, studies that are coming now are 30,000 people. That's a respectable sample size of the population. And the problem is a lot of what's being passed around now are even pre-publications. I've never experienced a time in my decade of health and science journalism where pre-publications were getting so much traction. What that means is they haven't been published. They haven't been edited yet. Mm-hmm. And they're getting out on the internet. People are releasing them and you, you only do that for a media or marketing opportunity. That was the only reason you would ever post a PDF of your pre-publication, even if it's been accepted. Uh, it's pure marketing. And it, I wish we were in an environment where we didn't know about any of the vaccine trials so far And we just knew that we were getting to some phase three and didn't see any results because yes, there would be, there would probably be more conspiracies around, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, you wouldn't see what Matthew brought up, which is just like, well, here's my science and my, why why is your science better than mine? And it's just, it feeds the tribalism, right? Everyone's rooting for their study before the study has results. (laughs) Yes. You need to get to phase four before you can take it seriously and legitimate and we're way before that at this point. I, so it sounds like the it sounds like the preprint problem is a real ethical issue, and that I mean, because I've 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 sort of seen that as well. That papers are marked or or tagged as well. This this hasn't gone through review yet, and I'm wondering why is anybody looking at it? Isn't isn't that defeating the entire purpose? But. Um, uh, are there journals that that penalize researchers for leaking their preprints? Like, who who? How, how does anybody is anybody held to account for that? I don't know. That might be a journal by journal case. I really right. don't know. But I, there probably is something about once it's accepted that maybe you can post. I don't know. I, I right. honestly, that is a question. I don't know. But I, I do agree that if I'm publishing in nature or the lancet i would think those publications would be like hey you this is if you want to publish here you can't go mm-hmm. leaking it anywhere or else we're not going to run well, it because- it's also it's also a question that gives the lie to the idea that that the medical science community or big pharma has some kind of lock on, on what gets out there you know and, and, and they're able yeah. to suppress all of the all of the evidence for the things that i want to believe that that may not be true so my, my last uh, counter argument that or, or argument that gets presented often uh, goes back to to what I was saying in the beginning that I can I can only imagine what it's like to re- to have your kid receive their vaccines and then they develop some kind of disorder later on and this is that correlation does not necessarily equal causation and I think that in a in a huge number of cases people who believe that the receiving of the vaccine led to the autoimmune disorder or to the neurological problems or to autism, they're, they're conflating correlation and causation. And when, when you look at the data, you look at the science, you look at, okay, this is correlated, so let's, let's do some studies on it. Let's find out if, if, if these ingredients or if these particular vaccines really do cause these conditions. The science always comes back and says, no, we actually couldn't find evidence of that. And yet, because there's a correlation there, because my baby was fine, then they had the vaccine. And even if it was hours later, it's still just a correlation. But usually it's, it's days later, it's weeks later, it's months later, it may even be a, a year or two later. And they go, they're, they're showing signs of being on the autism spectrum. I think it's that vaccine. I read something on the internet, or I heard someone else's story. And that, that's just another 
very tricky thing to, to learn how to tell the difference between. I mean, isn't it uh, Jenny McCarthy who went on Oprah and was yep. asked about the correlation question and she pointed or she referred to her son and she said, well, he's my proof. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and that is such a compelling emotionally. That's so compelling. Right. right? Where's your evidence? Yeah. yeah. And, son? He's right. And Wakefield, yeah. And Wakefield plays that like a violin because yep. that's in every interview that I've heard from him over the last year or so, it's like, well, the mother's intuition is leading the way. And, you know, mm -hmm. these are really the saviors of our children. And, and, and they, and they understand that uh, they, under, they, they understand what's happening internally and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the, they're, they're, they can contemplate better than the blood chemistry can, you know, yeah. it's uh, whatever exactly. his, whatever, yeah. whatever the argument is, it is very yeah. compelling. Right. Totally, totally. And, and one of the things that I think is so difficult about this that human beings are naturally not very good at innately, we're not good at understanding statistics, especially when we start getting into, re getting into really large numbers and talking about percentages of really large numbers. Because vaccines have been so effective and so successful, many, many millions of people have received a whole host of different vaccines and have been protected from all sorts of diseases that used to absolutely ravage our populations. And so when in, in those in incredibly large numbers, you find very small percentages of people who either had allergic reactions or who seem to have some terrible uh, uh, side effect associated or correlated with the vaccine later, those numbers can seem big. But when you take, when you take a couple hundred or a couple thousand as measured against hundreds of millions, start to see, well, actually, this, this may not be what, what you think it is. Right. It's, it's really difficult. So here's an example. With the polio vaccine, there actually are roughly three per million cases of vaccine-induced polio. Okay, and this, this only occurs when the oral version, and this is where, this is where you're probably going to want to jump in, Derek, about uh, active versus inactive. So the oral version of the polio vaccine and this is also where some of the conspiracy theories come from, and actually some of the accusations of racism come from, which we'll get into in a little bit here. In countries that don't have a lot of medical infrastructure, countries that are poor, the oral polio vaccine is generally the one that's used because it's cheaper, it, is, it doesn't require cold storage, and it can be administered in multiple, multiple doses by people who don't have any special kind of medical training. And so typically throughout Africa, parts of Asia, you see that the oral vaccine is used and it's generally very, very safe. But when you go into areas where a lot of people have not, a lot of kids have not been vaccinated against polio and you deliver the oral vaccine and those areas also have very poor sanitation because the way uh, polio is transferred is through feces, uh, you're going to have three per million who've been vaccinated who end up getting the disease as a result of the vaccine. And the fascinating thing I found is that it's actually not the vaccinated kid who ends up developing the symptoms. It's the virus has been excreted in their feces and another unvaccinated kid ends up being vulnerable to that live oral vaccine that's gone through a process in the intestines of the kid that excreted it. Go ahead, Derek. Uh no, I actually didn't know that about the excretions. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. No, I saw you leaning forward. I thought you had Oh, no. Just yeah. changing my posture. 
Okay. But it is gotcha. important to, to point out that the live version of the vaccine is the weakened form of, and that's what most people think of a vaccines, but another form of vaccine is the non-live, which is the killed vaccine. So the germ is no longer deadly. It's no longer alive, but that's what's used. Um, yeah. And so with, the, with, the, with that live weakened vaccine, you have three per million. And that is typically, again, in countries that are, that are really poor, that don't have access to great medical infrastructure, where humanitarian efforts are trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And it's, it's imperfect. Uh, and, and, you know, if it's your kid, if your kid is, that, is one of those three in a million, it seems unacceptable. And I, and I completely understand that. Uh, and it's one of the reasons that, that they're really pushing to get the inactive vaccine, which is the only one that is used, has been used in the United States for the last 20 years all over the world. But again, there are, there are limitations that have to do with money and that have to do with, with medical infrastructure and how many professionals are able to be there actually administering, uh, administering it as an injection, which is how you do the, the inactive vaccine. Now, here's the thing. Three kids per million still doesn't sound that great, right? But unvaccinated, 5,000 kids per million end up paralyzed after being infected with polio. 72% will have no symptoms. Here's where it's interesting. This, there's some interesting overlap here with COVID-19. 72% of those who get polio will have no symptoms, but they're still contagious. The remaining 28% will have flu-like symptoms. Sounding, sounding familiar? 5% will develop paralysis. And of that group, of that 5%, another 10% or less will end up dying. So as with COVID-19, these percentages can sound kind of low. But again, when you realize we're talking about percentages of a massive group of people because the illness is so incredibly contagious, that ends up being a lot of people. Widespread distribution of the polio vaccine has reduced the worldwide numbers from around 350,000 in 1988 to a total of 33 cases in 2018. So. That's polio. I wanted to, to come back around to Christiane Northrup, our, our patron saint. And I, you know, I talked a little bit in a previous episode about Oprah Winfrey's role, Oprah Winfrey's role, excuse me, in seeding conspirituality. I mentioned her repeatedly giving Jenny McCarthy sympathetic airtime and her link to uh, Andrew Wakefield via Dr. Northrup. What I haven't mentioned yet is that Northrup herself has been on Oprah too. And she's also been featured as an expert for the Ask Dr. Northrup column on Oprah's website, where not infrequently the question that comes up is about the HPV vaccine Gardasil. And Northrup will invariably point out that there are a hundred strains of HPV and the vaccine only protects you against four of those, so why even bother? Right? What she always leaves out is that those four are the ones that in 70% of cases produce cervical cancer. Yeah, so those are the, are the four really dangerous ones. And on top of that, she fails to mention that as of a few years ago, it now protects against nine different strains of HPV, all of which have a relatively high danger of, of leading to cancer. This month on her Great Awakening videos, Christiane has been talking about wanting to bring the anti-vaccine conversation into black communities. She says, we thought the HPV vaccine would be a good place to start because it has not yet been mandated. 
So she's wanting to go into African-American communities where there isn't already a lot of anti-vaccine activism and start to create it. And she thinks HPV is a really good place to start because it is a, it is a voluntary, you know, non-mandated vaccine. So here are some facts about HPV. The HPV vaccine has produced a 50% decrease in cervical cancer rates as of 2014. Approximately 170 million doses have been delivered worldwide with a low incidence of usually mild side effects. People are more likely, as compared to other vaccines, to faint right after the shot, and so it's good for them to hang out for 15 minutes after receiving it. There have been worldwide roughly 20 deaths of women who reported having received the vaccine, but so far, research has not led to establishing any causal relationship between the Gardasil vaccine and these women's death. There are also some cases of apparent correlation with the autoimmune system Guillain-Barre, but also no evidence there of causation. So again, we get into does correlation equal causation and how do we think about very large numbers and percentages? In fact, in most of the deaths mentioned, other, other causes were later found to be more likely to be the case. And in her treatment of this topic, Dr. Northrup goes to what we are now seeing as a familiar argument in our COVID times. She says, I would rather spend the money on getting everybody on a dietary program that would enhance their immunity. This is the same trope we hear from other COVID denialists, wellness advocates today, that if we are just healthy by a more natural means, we won't need the vaccine. Yeah, and she's if she's talking about black populations, that has a particular overtone to it as well, and you know has to That's be right. has to be accompanied with a lot of discussion of okay, well, what are we going to do about food deserts and access to you know proper nutrition and mm-hmm. and what are we actually saying about people's diets and and what kind of racist overtones does that have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how much time do I have for all of this self care and a budget for organic shopping if I'm working three minimum wage jobs to support my family? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I noted in my interview with uh, Professor Antonovich is that I read through her tome, her her Bible on uh, women's health and wellness, women's bodies, women's wisdom, I think, or something like that. And there was no, I did a keyword search on universal health care. Uh, on socialized medicine, on, um, you know, uh, I think the other keyword search that I did was um, uh, single payer option, or there was just no discussion whatsoever. No, no, I had searched social determinants of health. There's no sort of, you know, structural analysis whatsoever in as part of her thing. I mean, that she might not be well studied or, or particularly yeah. care about that, but that's where she's coming from is, is that uh, the, the individual really has to take it in hand to make sure that they're drinking their green shakes. And if they don't, then, uh, then, well, I guess they're going to get sick and we're not going to vaccinate them anyway. We shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they need to become more higher vibration people and then, everything will be fine. Northrop is not the only one. Also, anti-vax advocate RFK Jr. has been taking the anti-vax message into black communities. So this is, this is really troubling. He's been making inroads via democratic uh, politicians like Eric Underwood, NAACP leader Joyce Brooks, and Black Lives Matter activist Theo Wilson in Colorado to publicly frame as part of Underwood's campaign, which, which failed by the way, Um, to publicly frame vaccines as a form of oppression that endangers African-Americans, borrowing from the Wakefield playbook 
he who can who campaigned in uh, excuse me who campaigned to persuade Somali immigrants in Minneapolis to avoid the MMR vaccine, resulting in the state's largest outbreak of measles in 30 years. So RFK is sort of set to go down a similar track. Why don't you just drop some facts about the MMR vaccine really quickly? 97% of people are protected against measles when they get the vaccine, 88% against mumps, and at least 97% against rubella. Very, very effective vaccine. As of 2001, over 500 million doses have been given in over 100 countries. Measles, measles used to result in 2.6 million deaths per year before immunization. This has decreased to 122,000 deaths per year as of 2012. And of course, those deaths are mostly in countries without adequate access to the vaccine. Side effects of MMR, the studies have shown, are rare and transient, with one child in a million having a severe allergic reaction. But to go back to RFK and to Northrop and to HPV and, and this whole topic, there are nonetheless good reasons for people of color to be mistrusting of medical science. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so the case that I know you guys are familiar with is the Tuskegee syphilis study, or what it should actually be called the Tuskegee atrocity, which was uh, something really awful that started in the 1930s and went on for 40 years. And in this study, it was in uh, Macon County, Alabama, 399 men were studied to find out what the long-term effects of syphilis were. So they, they, were, they were discovered to have syphilis, which was prevalent in their community. And they were told, they were not told they had syphilis, they were told that they had bad blood and they were told they would get free food and free medical cure to try and help them with their symptoms, but they were never actually given any medicine. And at the time that the study began, penicillin was not yet being, I don't know if it hadn't been invented or if it just wasn't being used, but you know, roughly 10 years into the study, they knew that penicillin cured syphilis, but they never gave the medicine to these men and they never told them the truth. And this resulted in 128 deaths. 40 of the wives of the men were infected. 19 kids were born with syphilis. And, you know, this, this really horrible atrocity resulted in new regulations since it came to light around informed consent and ethical review boards for any kind of study like this. So um, just to be just to be really yeah. careful, just to be really careful about your reporting here, when Northrop and and uh, RFK are are meeting with Democratic leaders, I don't know if Northrop is or not, but uh, they they might be they might be exploiting a pre existing uh, uh, um, you know uh, tragedy. But but are they also being reached out to by leaders uh, in 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 black communities as well, like? Uh, to what extent is there a kind of uh, mutual uh, agreement, if any, with regard to the anti-vax agenda between these two groups? It's growing on the congressional level. I know I actually stumbled into a Facebook live video one day of a congressman in Texas who was on with some anti-vaxxers, and that's one of his platforms. Uh, so it seems the influence seems to be growing. And I think that as everything in this age, as things gain traction, you will find more. I mean, we talked about the single issue voters. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Right. And it's all about vaccination now. And that mm-hmm. will actually influence who goes into running for local and congressional seats as well as where people's focus starts to lie. So the more noise that's being made around these issues, the more that's going to become prevalent. Yeah, maybe maybe a sharper question is: mm-hmm. uh, Do we do we do we know do we know of a mm-hmm. black anti-vax movement that that predates Wakefield or anybody else? The related related to things like Tuskegee. I haven't come across anything like that. Uh, right. There there may well be. Uh, the impression that I've gotten from from looking at this, uh, especially at the RFK story, is that it's part of his activism is is uh, you know trying to get involved in various communities in terms of their their political process and and framing vaccines as a political issue. So it wasn't entirely clear who reached out to whom, and I think it is a good question. Uh, right. What in in the particular article that I read, which we can link in the show notes. Uh, there was a quote from Theo Wilson, who's the Black Lives Matter activist who got involved in that campaign for, uh, for Underwood's, uh, I think, congressional race. And Underwood was being very heavily influenced by RFK. And Theo Wilson, the Black Lives Matter activist, did say, we live in the shadow of Tuskegee. Right. Uh, which I thought was very, very noteworthy. Yeah. And so that's one, one last thing that's related to Another incident that, that a lot of people had brought up to me over the last couple of years, and I, and I hadn't looked into it, so I'm glad that I have now, because people will always say, what about the CDC whistleblower? Have, have you guys heard of this? No. So the, the CDC whistleblower is uh, a guy named William Thompson, worked at the CDC, was involved in safety research. Uh, he was recorded without his knowledge, talking about various claims to do with with corruption at the CDC. Uh, He claimed that in 2004, they had destroyed, he and a group of other doctors had sat in a room and destroyed hard copies of evidence that showed black kids had significantly more risk of developing autism as a result of receiving the MMR vaccine. And again, just to be clear, there's no evidence that anyone is at risk from vaccines, uh, of getting autism from vaccines. But this is something that, that he talked about in, a, in what he thought was a private phone conversation with someone who is, who's an activist and a documentary maker named, uh, named Mark Hooker, I believe. Uh, Hooker would later go on to publish his own paper, reanalyzing the data, which of course was there in the, in the database, even though they had burned the hard copies as a way to try and hide the evidence. He was then able to go and, and find the evidence and do his own study and publish it. Uh, and the same year that it was published, it was retracted. And Thompson, the, the much-touted CDC whistleblower, also later changed his story, said he had been having acute psychological problems prior to being recorded, that he did not know he was recorded at the time, and it was only revealed to him later. And he has been on the record saying that he would himself publish a paper. In 2016, he said this, showing that there was actually no link, uh, but the paper never materialized. So who knows what happened with that? But again, it's another instance, right, of, of where, where you, can, you can make the argument to black communities, hey, there's this study that was covered up that showed that black kids are more vulnerable to developing autism as a result of MMR. And so this is, this is part of how the, the Trojan horse effect works. Well, that was a deep dive into vaccine efficacy and the history and how it's moving culturally. And 
we're going to change and look at the platforms and how they're dealing with anti-vax rhetoric and organizations and specifically advertising dollars. And I want to highlight the report that inspired this week's interview with Imrad Ahmed, the founder of the UK's UK-based organization, the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Imran is also a trustee of the charity Victim Support and was appointed to the steering committee of the UK government's Commission of Countering Extremism Pilot Task Force in April of 2020. He received an MA in Social and Political Sciences from the University of Cambridge and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Imran founded the center in December of 2017, and he explains the roots of the organization during our talk. What I found interesting was that the group was created to combat identity-based hate in digital spaces, but pivoted in early March to focus solely on the pandemic. And that led to them researching vaccine disinformation. A few weeks ago, they produced a 34-page report, The Anti-Vax Industry, How Big Tech Powers and Profits from Vaccine Misinformation. It's linked to in the show notes, and I highly recommend reading it. The top-line finding is that anti-vax groups reach 58 million social media users, driving nearly $1 billion to these platforms between their own ads and advertisers specifically targeting the anti-vax community. Naturally, my inclination is to look for motive. Why would these groups spend that kind of money to promote vaccine disinformation? Now, as you'll hear in the interview, he punts those questions because his focus is on the tech platforms, and I respect him for that, yet his reporting does reveal some insights, and I'm personally not above a little armchair psychology. The most influential anti-vax organizations are funded by just two men, osteopath Joseph Mercola, who runs a dietary supplement and medical device company and he gives financial support to the National Vaccine Information Center and the Organic Consumers Association, and fund manager Bernard Sells, who ponies up three-fourths of the money that supports the Informed Action Consent Network, which, among other things, funds our friend of the podcast, Del Bigtree. Now, Mercola is easy. He uses vaccine fear-mongering to sell supplements. That part of his business has put over $100 million into his bank accounts. And I'm speaking supplements in general, not just anti-vaccination rhetoric. But since the start of the pandemic, he's claimed at least 22 vitamins and supplements prevent or cure COVID-19. Now, vaccine misinformation is just one of his techniques. Previously, he stated that microwaves alter the chemistry of food, mobile phones cause cancer, and pasteurized milk causes negative health effects. Cells is harder to figure out. His philanthropic work is extensive thanks to his management of a $500 million fund. Now, his anti-vax efforts include $1.6 million given to another friend of the pod, Andrew Wakefield, which he used to fund the movement's opus, Vaxed which he made with Del Bigtree, of course. Since the Sells family avoids media contact, his motives are obscured. Now, before we roll into the interview, I want to point something out about all of this information because it's pertinent to so many of the skirmishes I see online and then I get into on social media. The greed of the pharmaceutical industry and the efficacy of vaccines are two separate issues. They always seem to get lumped together and that confusion is dangerous. 
So let's leave aside the question of vaccine efficacy for a moment. We've covered that in detail so far. If your concern about vaccines is tied in any way to profit motive, then ask yourself, why would men who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars be promoting vaccine hesitancy while at the same time promoting products that supposedly cure what vaccines cannot? Thank you very much for taking a little bit of time to talk. You founded the Center for Countering Digital Hate in 2017, and you tackle a lot of problems with your organization, but I'm wondering what made you want to focus on anti-vaxxers? Well, the Center for Countering Digital Hate was set up originally to look at the um, proliferation of identity-based hate in digital spaces and looking at the way that it had been instrumentalized by political forces. So what they would get is they'd get access to trolls who would go and harass their enemies. They'd get um, people who would go and advocate their positions and create social proof that their fringe views were actually more, uh, more socially acceptable. And they'd also have people who would change the way that we understand the world around us using the tools of social media and in particular, Facebook and Facebook, its ability to persuade normal people that the world is slightly different to the way that they understood it to be. And then Twitter to influence elite debate. And uh, earlier this year in February, we realized that the spaces that we were normally tracking full of hate actors were pivoting to look at coronavirus. Um, seeing it as an opportunity to further advocate and um, embed their ideas that um, the elites can't be trusted, that they're the true voice of the people, and that and uh, to, to sort of to pursue their conspiracist worldview. Um, so we transitioned all of our teams to studying coronavirus specifically uh, very early in March, about the, the first or second of March. Um, and in doing so, we we also came across a wider ecosystem of health misinformation actors who some of them were spivs who were selling their own false cures and using the same dynamics of not trusting authorities, of believing conspiracy theories, of claiming to be the true voice of the people to sell products. Um, and then a committed group of hardcore anti-vaxxers as well. And this coalition of, you know, not, not to sort of to, to try and brand it or anything, but a coalition of chaos, coronavirus chaos, uh, came together and we decided to study it in a lot of detail. And about a month and a half ago, we realized that they'd been trying different methods to keep the sort of conspiracy going. They tried 5G, we all know that, that had some success for them. Um, they tried track and trace, that didn't have a lot of success for them. Uh, so saying that track and trace was about microchipping people so they could track them constantly, which was clearly bananas. Um, and not least of all, these track and trace systems didn't work. Um, so, you know, as I've always argued, the, the best argument against conspiracy is usually the sheer incompetence of our uh, political masters. Uh, and uh, in that case, it really did come true. Um, and then finally, they, they alighted upon uh, vaccines, and that's been a really, really powerful um, strand for them to pursue. And we know that that's dangerous because uh, myself, I mean, when I was 17, I went to med school, and I'm a, you know, I'm someone who understands and believes in the scientific method. The science and 
we, we can be pretty confident that vaccines are in fact one of the safest, most, uh, most effective um, and most consequential medical discoveries of the past few hundred years. Uh, they've saved countless lives. They've saved children from being crippled with polio and other diseases. And for, for those to be under assault in coronavirus seemed to me to be incredibly dangerous because coronavirus is highly contagious. That means that you need to have pretty widespread coverage for it to be, for any vaccine to be effective. And if substantial numbers of people are being exposed to anti-vax conspiracies and propaganda, it could put at risk our ability to contain the disease and therefore risk, as we know, tens of thousands of lives year after year after year because this disease would be raging uncontrolled. Even before the coronavirus, in America at least, we had gone from 94% of adults saying that vaccines were you know, uh, beneficial. And right before the coronavirus, it went down to 84%. And that's the wrong direction, obviously. So they were making an impact before that. But the most startling uh, thing that I read in your report, and what made me want to reach out to you was finding out that you've identified a billion dollars in revenue being generated for these technology companies, and they have a reach of 58 million users. And I want to know how you arrived at that $1 billion mark. So let's work um, from the beginning. First of all, what we'd already been doing was we'd already been asked in, uh, I think it was January, to study for the APPG, so an all-party parliamentary group, a cross-party group in the UK Parliament, the anti-vax infrastructure. And we'd done something there for them. And I mean, you're right in saying that vaccine hesitancy has been rising in Western countries. That's why in 2019, we had our first serious measles outbreak in the developed world. And, um, and it was getting to, you know, uh, between 10, 15%. In the UK, we found coronavirus hesitancy at 30%, three in 10 people. And in the US, four in 10 people. Now, what's driven that acceleration in the past few months from a position where it was about one or you know one or two people in every ten, uh, and that's what's been building up over years and years of anti-MMR and anti-vaccine uh, conspiracy theories, driven by people like Andrew Wakefield, who famously published a, a, an article in the Lancet, a medical journal in the UK, which they shamefully published, which which started this whole phenomenon in its modern incarnation. So we knew that that these groups existed. We'd been looking at them. We. Uh, I asked the team to, to revisit that study and look at, well, how big are these spaces now? And we'd identified 409 groups, so Facebook groups in which people were discussing health information or specifically about vaccines, and, we just, and, and groups and, and individuals who had a follower base uh, on social media, which, um, of course, you know, the, the, the reason why social media companies have these people on their platforms are that people want, you know, there are some people who want to hear from them. And they are, by publishing them, they are making a decision that they would seek to monetize that content. Because these platforms, let's not forget, they weren't designed for free speech. The timeline is not about who's written the most recent thing. It's an algorithmically generated list of content which prioritizes that information which is most engaging. And it's designed to keep us scrolling down and being fed ads contextually as we do so. 
And so when we looked at these platforms, we, with the 409 spaces, we counted up a total of 58 million followers. We knew that that had grown by about 8 million, I think it was, uh, over the coronavirus crisis. We'd estimated that was about a million, a million and a half a month. Um, and we, um, we then applied a series of calculations using open source intelligence. So for example, with Twitter, we know how much they, uh, they have themselves stated that monetizable daily average users um, uh, bring them. Uh, with Facebook, we had similar level data with Google as well. Um, these are calculations that we've used in the past, the previous reports, most notably when we studied uh, the value of David Icke to these platforms. And they've been, I mean, my argument has always been that if they were wrong and if our calculations were bad, my gosh, they would have gone for us over, over that, surely. Uh, and they failed to do so. I suspect that because we're incredibly conservative in our economics, we try not to put ourselves in a position where we're overclaiming that we may have underestimated it. Mm. And so if they actually challenged it, they'd have to give a real number and the real number is substantially higher. Um, but we came to the conclusion that if you looked at this open source intelligence data, if uh, for some of them we used tools that were available, uh, which had API access to get an understanding of what true follower base looked like um, and what the most active users looked like, um, we were able to calculate that it came to a total of, I admit, a, a suspiciously round number of a billion. I think the number is around 900 million or so. 950 million and that was rounded up to a billion for the purposes of communicating a very large number that you know frankly at that point doesn't make any sense to anyone really um so yeah that's how we came to it uh the lancet unfortunately took 12 years to retract wakefield's study and it's well known that he was paid eight hundred thousand dollars to falsify data brian deere's done that reporting i'm going to be talking to brian in a few weeks and right. 10 of the 13 researchers retracted their support of it. And all of this is well known. And yet Wakefield is only in some circles gaining in popularity, especially right now. Why do you think that, what, what is it about the mindset that people still cling to him and champion him uh, in this work that he's doing? There's a lot of research to show why people hold aberrant views and, conspiracist worldviews. And I, on a personal level, I'm genuinely really interested. Um, as the chief executive of the Center for Countering Digital Hate, I refrain from indulging my, you know, my barely remembered uh, clinical uh, understanding of, um, of these behaviors and the social psychology and individual psychology and neurology papers that I've read since then. Um, because in the end, the, the motivation should not matter to me so much as the effect of what they do and the tools that I have available to me to shut them down and shut their spaces down. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> about uh, being clear with myself and with the organization and my colleagues are the same. Uh, we, we, we don't want to almost give credibility or sympathy for their views, of, uh, for the views of anti-vaxxers, some of whom I do believe genuinely hold those opinions, erroneous as they may be. 
and they hold them with great passion and as, with as much certainty as I have that looking at the historical record, we can be certain that vaccines are some of the safest interventions we've ever created. Uh, they hold their views based on aberrant information, using things like confirmation bias, using, um, um, you know, managing to resolve their own cognitive dissonance between the facts and what they believe. Uh, they, um, you know, I, 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 I have, I understand why they exist, but it's not my job to sort of to, to excuse it. So. Right. I'm sorry if that wasn't terribly helpful, but <laughs> no, no, absolutely, no, no. Very strongly, I hold very strongly the belief that, um, especially Facebook and others, they want to argue these are legitimate opinions at the same time as recognizing that that when they go out in public statements, they have to say, of course, we'll crack down on them. So their own terms of service say, of course, we'll crack down on them because, of course, the majority opinion of the site, well, the almost untrammeled opinion of the scientific community of legislators, of policymakers, of the public is these spaces are dangerous, these individuals are dangerous, they're dangerous propagandists and they can cost thousands of lives and so therefore they should have access taken away from them. Uh, they should not be given access to the most powerful communications platforms on earth that are literally designed to advantage them over factual sources. As a I've worked as a journalist in the health and wellness space for decades. I've also a fitness and yoga instructor. So I've been around these people. And one of the incredible aspects of the way that they think is that vaccines work by allowing your body to produce antibodies naturally. They're, they're, you're right. They're one of the most uh, efficacious uh, realizations of thousands of years in the making, but you know, really 200 years in terms of modern science that we've come up to. And it's all about that. But for some reason, they really do passionately believe they're evil, mostly because of some ingredients that are actually not harmful at all. Sure. One, thing, one thing that we talk about both in the podcast and right often about though is my gut reaction always is, is, is visceral and it's just to kind of shake people. But one thing that has come out in the literature and some psychologists do uh, recognize to not engage and call people dumb, but to try to engage them and show them the, uh, you know, the error of their ways, let's say. And with your organization, you're talking a lot about shutting down and I do want to talk about that next, about how you would exactly approach the technology companies, but how we do have these platforms and how would you advise or how would you feel about going about engaging anti-vaxxers in any capacity? So the evidence from both the social psychology, so if you look at uh, studies done by Nihon and Riefler um, and uh, the subsequent corpus of work on anti-vax, on disabusing people of anti-vax beliefs, that there is strong evidence to suggest that A, it's difficult, uh, if not impossible, and B, that there may be, to some extent, a backfire effect, that it may entrench views to try and tell people that these are the facts as the scientific, scientific establishment have them. And that comes down to complex psychological and uh, psychological reasons. Um, 
The there is evidence that inoculation can work. Ironically, you can have a vaccine against vaccine misinformation, and that's the work of people like Sander van der Linden at the Cambridge Fake News Unit, who's done amazing work, interesting work on how do you give people information, you know, before they can be infected, to give them resilience against propaganda when they then receive it, and that's really interesting to me. It's interesting on an intellectual level. Again, that's an ecosystem of responses that exist out there, and my job is not to do everything at the same time. I have a relatively small organization behind me. Um, we're growing uh, because we've, you know, we've, we've gained some purchase with reports like the Anti-Batch Report in, in, in having perhaps a unique understanding of the digital dynamics of this. But there is also a digital aspect to it, which is that, and this comes back to one of our first reports ever, Don't Feed the Trolls, which is that, and it comes back to why these platforms are so dangerous. All these platforms are based on engagement. And, and here's the problem with facts and, 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 um, and misinformation. Facts aren't that engaging. If the NHS tweets or the CDC tweets something, I would never ever write back, well done guys, or retweet. It's just a weird thing to do. Who retweets the NHS? It's a really dorky thing to do. <laughs> but if someone, if someone says, you know what? The sky, is, the sky is green. You know, I want to virtue signal my superior scientific understanding that the sky, sir, is blue. And in engaging with it, in, in showing that I'm taking the time to engage with it, the platform's algorithms are constantly looking for that. They're looking for the content that makes people stay on the platform, makes people spend a few seconds more. Every three seconds you spend more, every half a second you spend more on that platform, when multiplied across billions of users, that is an enormous amount of advertising revenue. Those, all these are moments that they can serve you adverts. And that's what these platforms are all about. And in doing so, the platforms, by design, by their very business model, they advantage misinformation over fact. And so we've always said, if you see misinformation, we, we actually put together a scheme called Don't Spread the Virus with the backing of the UK government. And it's had a lot of pickup from other governments as well. Um, we've talked to the UN about it and others. Um, through their verified scheme, which is, you know, if you see misinformation, first of all, um, ignore it because um, engaging with it actually rewards them with the attention that they want in the algorithm. Block the person that sent it. If it's someone you know, you might want to send them a private message. And then go and find some good information and engage with that. Retweet it. And that way we can balance out the misinformation on the platform with information and taking advantage of the algorithmic logic that underpins them. So we are, you know, we, we have done some thinking about the pro-social, um, pro-vaccine movement and how to bolster it. But uh, in the end, our part of the ecosystem uh, of responses is to is to make it more difficult for them to operate, to disrupt their activities. And that in part is the platform. I watched your appearance on CBS where you were talking about Mark Zuckerberg's interview with Dr. Fauci and it was, it was wonderful. And I wonder how on a platform level, how do we hold these platforms accountable? You mentioned earlier that they say they're going to do things and then they rarely do, or sometimes it's, it's just minor tweaks. Uh, you know, Twitter taking down the QAnon uh, accounts this week, for example, and then they were right back up is a good example of that. Um, yeah. So, so what what would you like to see? Uh, Facebook and YouTube, which are the two, or you said Facebook and Instagram, correct? Were the two biggest offenders in terms of uh, revenue generated from the anti-vaxxers. What would you like to see them do? 
So um, the evidence, the best evidence on the efficacy of deplatforming comes from counterterrorism, and it comes. And if you speak to people like Jan Berger, who's a doyen of counter extremism, and look at his work on Al Shabaab and ISIS, and the way that when they were comprehensively deplatformed, they had to spend a vast amount of their resources on reconstituting their audiences, and they never managed to reconstitute them to the same scale. It was always a nub that was left that was left for them, and of course, because they use social media as a force multiplier, that made them less effective overall as an organisation. So we've looked at what the evidence shows, and the evidence shows that deplatforming is highly effective. That is why, of course, the social media companies platform, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, and terrorist groups, because it poses an existential reputational threat to them. It's a reputational threat. So we seek to create a similar reputational threat and understanding as to the fact that they profit from content that will harm you, your family, the people you love, our communities, our nations, our world. And they do so without a single a fear of consequence, because there are no consequences for these platforms at the moment. The big mistake we've made is thinking that public opinion will change their views. And Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google don't care about your opinion, because you're not their customer, you're their product. And what they seek to do is package your information that you willingly hand over to them, you know, loads of content about how you're feeling, your sentiments, your prejudices, your your day-to-day -day activities, your discourse style, and they package and sell that to their true customers, the advertisers. And I think the great innovation over the last year, two years has been operations like Stop Funding Fake News, which my organization runs, Stop Hate for Profit, which Color of Change, ADL, Common Sense Media run in the United States, um, which have said, let's forget about trying to negotiate with these folks. They won't negotiate. Let's go to their real customers, the advertisers. And where those advertisers are business to consumer, rather than business to business like Facebook and Google, where they're business to consumer, they are, of course, sensitive to what members of the public think. And that's been the great innovation. You've got to find the levers that you can pull to create change. That's what change agents do. They, they look for the weak points in the architecture and they go after those levers ruthlessly. And I am so pleased that we've reached this tipping point where people are seeing the sheer power of targeting advertisers and getting them to do the right thing. I'm so pleased as well to see how well it's gone got in the States. I know that from them, for our part, we've shut down websites in the last few weeks and months. Um, news, uh, fake news sites, which have been proselytizing COVID misinformation, vaccine misinformation, by going after their Google advertisers. So, you know, that this is a method that works. And I think, I think the genie's at the bottle. We know now one really effective tool to deal with. I'm so happy to hear you say that. You know, I'm, I'm not in any way asking for your overall political views, but I know in America, people who are more liberal tend to not recognize that this is a warfare in some capacity and they don't, they, they kind of let things play out. Whereas there is this concerted effort behind these organizations. And I, I really don't think that a lot of the people that I engage with in the wellness space recognize that the anti-vax organization from behind the scenes is extremely well organized. And I mean, in the report, you write, you write that there are two main groups or two main people, uh, Joseph Mercola and Bernard Sells, behind all of this. What do you think the end game is for them? 
I honestly don't know. I mean, I, as much as I'm good at peering into people's behaviours and working out what their strategy is and therefore how to disrupt their strategy, I still haven't yet achieved the omniscience to be able to look into people's souls and tell me what motivates them. That is yet to come. I'm only 41, so you never know. Uh, uh, but I, I'm, uh, I, I don't know what their end game is, but I do know, I know what the result will be. Death. Yes. Lots and lots of people will die. That's the problem. Children will be crippled. And, you know, I, 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 I'm nowhere near as fit as you are, but I, I gave up smoking recently. I don't drink. I, I exercise fairly regularly. I'm pretty sure that if, both, if either of us was exposed to smallpox or to TB or to uh, measles, we would be very poorly, despite the fact that, you know, I, I, I eat a lot of greens and... Um, and <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, I, I think I always say anecdote is not data. And a lot of the people are running on anecdote in turn, even now in California, where I live, you know, there, there are, we have the record number of cases here and there are still people around being like, I don't know anyone personally, so it must not be real. And again, you want to shake them. But uh, last question, and I'll let you get to the beach. Um, now that the report is out and I know you are doing some media and I appreciate you taking the time, time out to do this. What, what do you, what is your group working on next and how are you <clears throat> trying to engage with the tech companies and the public to get this message out? So on, our, our next report will be an audit of how they've done on anti-vax, the anti-vax infrastructure. It'll be, um, we'll be looking at how they respond to reporting by normal users. So we're talking to normal users and getting information on what's been reported and how that's been actioned. But we'll also be looking at what they've done with the 409 spaces that we identified. Now they came out straight away and said, beyond the pale, disgusting, we'll deal with this stuff, don't you worry. Um, and I got lots of questions from people saying, you know, they've already said they're gonna deal with this, so why are you complaining? Well, our argument has been that when we've independently audited their behavior in the past, specifically on coronavirus misinformation, and this is in our will to act report that's on the website now, counterhate.co.uk, um, the, the will to act report showed that less than one in 10 of bits of, information, of misinformation reported via their platform's own reporting tools. So served up on a silver platter, we told them exactly what it was, it was in breach of their terms of service, only less than one in 10 was actually taken down or dealt with. And I, mean, I think in the parts of tactical mistake by them, they then texted me in the morning the report came out saying, oh, we've taken it all down now. So uh, I assume they wanted me to, to, to give them brownie points to say that they're wonderful. But in fact, all that said to me was A, they didn't deal with it when they first saw it. And B, it was in breach of their terms of service. So, you know, not the smartest move in my opinion, but that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with companies that don't feel there are any consequences, can deal in an offhand and arrogant way and have more money than almost any companies in the history of humankind. They're able to buy the best lobbyists, the best PR spinners. And we're a relatively small, initially UK-based. We're opening an office in Washington. In fact, I'm, I'm on my way to Washington on Thursday to start the setup for our DC office. Um, but you know, we are a relatively small movement but I think one that has realized that we have a lot more power than we, than we thought before if we, if we are able to A, identify the right targets, B, to point the finger at where the blame truly lies, which is the social media companies. 
uh, and C, to work in concert with other organizations. So we've been talking to the World Health Organization, Her Majesty's government, the US government, to a whole array of, of stakeholders and getting them together because I think a lot of people do realize that this is an existential crisis now. Anti-vax is not just like, it's not hate where it affects me because I'm brown or my mum because she's Muslim or my friends because they're Jewish. This affects all of us. Like anyone can die of coronavirus. Okay, as sort of an epilogue to today's episode, I'll change gears for a minute here and talk about my old high-demand group leader. And I want to thank friend of the podcast, Philip Dieslip. Uh, he's a yoga scholar who's done a lot of research into kundalini yoga history, and he's also deconstructed a lot of the myths that have been propping it up for decades. Uh, so we'll link to his research in the show notes. Uh, Philip alerted me to what my old cult leader is up to. Uh, he sent me a promo video made by Michael Roach for an online program that starts August 1st. So I'm going to do two things here. I'm going to run down some history on Roach and then speak more generally about the opportunistic parasitism of cults and their charismatic leaders, especially when it comes to uh, shifting world events. Because what we'll see, I think what we're going to increasingly see with high demand groups uh, during a crisis like uh, COVID-19 is a drive to reframe their ideology and their business models as even more uh, crucial to world preservation or you know, the elevation of human consciousness or what have you. Uh, back in the fall, in fact, I was tracking how this is starting to happen with certain eco-activist groups. Uh, suddenly in groups like uh, Extinction Rebellion, I started seeing Buddhist teachers selling their books and workshops. Uh, and, you know, some of that's, this is okay, but... It's all conveniently timed with the collapse of major Buddhist institutions from abuse revelations. So it's an important trend to be aware of. Uh, when the curtains are thrown back on you know, institutions like Rigpa International or Shambhala International and what we see are decades of institutional abuse, there's a lot of rats that are going to be abandoning ships uh, and they are going to be running towards new markets. Um, and, you know, cults that infiltrate social and political movements are always recycling old material. So that's kind of the tell. Uh, and that's what Roach is doing here. And as Imran Ahmed pointed out, we're in a time of corona chaos. Uh, and so this is really a good moment for uh, some old news. And, and what I want to do is, is also thank Naomi Klein for her presentation of disaster capitalism in um, her book called, is it called Shock Doctrine, I think. Uh, basically, she describes that whenever chaos strikes, the robber barons will sweep in to buy up distressed properties and, you know, institute banking reforms and change around social systems and, and so on. And in the same way, high demand group leaders uh, will pounce on the emotionally vulnerable during times of crisis. Uh, I'd like to call this disaster spirituality. It's, it's carried out by people who have a lot of practice. It has a logic to it. Uh, they end up being very good at it. Um, now, next week, I'll, I'll look at Roach again 
by summarizing his content and his worldview, because in my opinion, it actually provides the most sophisticated support that we'll see, that perhaps we'll ever see so far uh, for a conspirituality position. Um, he, he presents what I'll call a soft conspirituality because he's not overtly scaring the shit out of anybody. Uh, it's a lot smarter than that. But in, in the end, it's no less distracting and dangerous than the surreal garbage that we see on Christiane Northrup's feed. Um, so we'll link this video in the show notes. Uh, in it, he's promoting an online retreat. Uh, it starts August 1st. And this is what he says. The retreat is called Love in the Time of the Virus, and we're going to try very hard to learn a special kind of love that could actually destroy the virus in the world. And let's try to do a good job on that. Um, so Roach is selling meditations that will destroy the virus in the world. And, and in a moment, you know, I'll, I'll say more about how every word of that promise depends on a culty definition. But for now, let's just look at the raw data. Um, there's 37,000 views so far on the video. There's 125 shares. If you browse those shares, you'll see the vast majority of sharers have Chinese, Mongolian, Vietnamese, or Russian names. Uh, so this is directly related to the, to the fact that after Roach faced a tsunami of damning press starting in 2012, after the death of my fellow student Ian Thorson, uh, he actively pursued recruiting in countries where the news hadn't penetrated. So he does really well wherever people don't speak English. Uh, the rest of the promo buffers the outrageous promise uh, with you know, the same old robes of legitimacy that he's always uh, worn. Uh, so Roach says that he'll be teaching from a medieval Tibetan text, that he'll be doing uh, a word-by-word -word exegesis, he'll be going into great detail, he'll be going very deep. Uh, he refers to the 8th century Buddhist saint Shantideva. Now, if some random person clicks through to registration for the event, they're presented with three buy-in levels. Uh, the first one is free, and then the up levels offer more contact with Roach via his support staff. Now, just going on the 37,000 views, if Roach's conversion rate to the middling level of engagement, uh, which costs $49, is 3%, and 3% is really low, uh, the gross for the course is about $54,000. But his reach is going to be way higher than that. So that's going to be a conservative estimate. But when I click through, I see spiritual content that I recognize from the late 1990s when I was a member of his group. So here's a little history. In the mid-90s, uh, Roach started teaching a small circle of New Yorkers about the basics of Galupa Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. This is the school of the Dalai Lama, uh, the scholastic school, very intellectually oriented, uh, philosophically oriented. Now, he used borrowed loft apartments and he made cassette tapes that eventually people could mail order or they could buy them at his public talks. It was always very cheap, really just, you know, costs of production. And he was unique at that time because he he seemed to have a legitimate grasp on the root texts of the monastic curriculum that he'd studied under a bona fide Tibetan Lama named Losung Tarchan, who was the pastor of a Buddhist church in Howell, New Jersey, uh, which is where he served a small Mongolian community. Now, at the time, there were very few English language teachers of this material, and Roach was working publicly and not in a university. He was engaging, impassioned, 
And in those early tapes, you can hear the sentiments of both a scholar and a true believer, uh, somebody who had been personally touched by this religion in a way that he claimed was life-saving. And the big draw with him was this alchemy of emotion and the seeming precision of his word-by-word analysis of the medieval literature. Uh, The early tapes were accompanied by study notes and quizzes that you could mail in and Roach's followers would mark them and send them back. Uh, All you had to pay for was shipping. And at that point, Roach was getting by on donations alone. He always had a really good nose for that. I'll save more of the personal stuff uh, for a later episode that we're going to do on our personal cult experiences. Uh, But I can say that watching the current promo video shows a little bit of that personal uh, draw that I felt, I think. Uh, It's like this combination of seriousness, empathy, and then just down-homey corniness that I remember from 25 years ago. He says, I'll just repeat it, the the retreat is called Love in the Time of the Virus, and we're going to try very hard to learn a special kind of love that could actually destroy the virus in the world, and let's try to do a good job on that. Um, You know, it's really strangely earnest and childlike, like we'll give it the old college try, but it may not work out, but it doesn't really matter uh, because we're doing a good job anyway. Roach was really a master at touching a large emotional range, but this is a kind of a signature moment. In his voice, you can hear a mixture of conviction, uncertainty, righteousness, but also the kind of happy hopelessness that's rooted in the belief that if it doesn't work out this time, we'll be back again to try again, hopefully with better skills and better karma, as he would say. So, here's an indication of how deeply this stuff can sink in. Here I am 25 years later, moved by something that feels like authenticity, this mixture of melancholy and hope that gets really close to home. Uh, It feels archetypal, I think, to family relationships, Uh, but it also cuts to the quick of modern Buddhism, you know, in which the mantra is that life is suffering, but look at how beautiful we are when we try to do our best. Uh, Roach Roach really nails this. Here's the thing. Uh, he, the whole thing was deceptive. And it still is if Roach is saying that meditation will eradicate a virus. Uh, and at the center of the deception was the secret life that he led as a secret tantra practitioner, uh, which involved him living with up to six women at a time in solitary retreat. And in my opinion, committing clerical sexual abuse with his spiritual partner, Christy McNally, who was decades younger than him and obviously under his intense influence. I, I, I was with them uh, for months on end uh, and I didn't recognize it at the time, but you know, it was clear what direction the power flowed. Now, if you click on the Rolling Stone article in the show notes, you can read about he and Christie spent years literally stuck to each other, vowing to never be more than 15 feet apart. So when we traveled with them, I remember her having to stand guard outside of the wheelchair accessible bathroom in airports because that would be within 15 feet while he took like his bodhisattva crap. Uh, so there's a, there's a, there's a long story behind all of this. It's tawdry. Uh, but you've got to understand that that Roach's entire performance was built upon being a legitimate celibate monk in the Dalai Lama school. That's where all his validation and money came from. And if his followers knew that he was just shacking up with girlfriends, uh, that, you know, the money would have run out. Um, 
And, but there was more that they didn't know. Uh, he consistently oversold his monastic training, implying always, like almost every day, that he'd spent 18 years in India and in, when it was really New Jersey, uh, that he was you know, constantly inflating his biography, that rumors of his spiritual attainment were based on him breaking a strict vow against monks speaking about their meditation achievements, lest they become egotistical or worse. Um, so... I'll just stick, though, to the Roach public face, which showed that his root deception in his presentation is really a case of falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus. Uh, the cultic dynamics around him prevented us as followers from getting the memo that increasingly he was teaching what was a perverted version of Tibetan Buddhism that started to sound like uh, prosperity gospel stuff. Um, and it had the goal of targeting wealthier and wealthier students. He founded a bunch of shell corporations that were designed to Trojan horse his content into unlikely demographics. Uh, so there was the Enlightened Business Institute that went after bankers and hedge fund managers. There was Star of the East, which was for Christians. Um, and followers poured their volunteer time into all of these things, including myself. And there was never any clarity about where the money was coming from or where it went. And he also always displayed this common charismatic skill of transforming criticism into opportunity by dodging it. He came out of his three retreat, uh, which he spent in a yurt with Christy McNally, and he announced to the world that he had attained a special meditation level and that she was a deity who had been teaching him esoteric practices, and the Tibetans were not impressed. And in this great example of Lama trash-talking, uh, Lama Zopa, the founder of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, wrote this open letter saying that if Roach really was so enlightened, he should be able to stand on the roof of the Potala Palace and take a leak and then suck the urine back up into his penis before it hit the ground. Uh, and as far as I know, uh, Roach never took him up on it. Uh, <laughs> But, but Roach, nonetheless, then went on to piss off the entire Tibetan clergy by staging teachings in Dharamsala at the same time as the Dalai Lama. And this is like, this would be like some wacky Catholic priest setting up a tent revival in St. Peter's Square during Holy Week. So that when the Tibetan hierarchy banished him, uh, he doubled down, uh, creating for himself this kind of new outsider role in which his like sexual tantric edge lord status now made him an expert in relationships. And because his support within the uh, Tibetan Buddhist diaspora was wearing thin, he started to market to the yoga crowd, making his first connections through Jiva Mukti Yoga in New York City. And the general chaos and intensity of his group just escalated until Ian Thorson died in a cave in the Arizona desert after he was kicked out, out of Roach's retreat property. Now, among his lasting legacy are books he published with Doubleday that presented basically the message of the secret in a more plausible form. So what was that message? And how does it connect to a special kind of love that could actually destroy the virus in the world? Because that sounds like the secret. So that's what I'm going to turn to next week. But I'm bringing all of this up, not only because I'm personally connected to it, uh, but because I think it's important 
to recognize that anybody who had spiritual content cocked and loaded before lockdown is now in the position to run uh, what I'd call the disaster spirituality program. Um, so uh, I'll just describe it here. I put this on Facebook. In disaster spirituality, the robber barons already have social and ideological assets in place and online to deploy in the recruitment of people who are now housebound and anxious. They're well-practiced in communicating with the vulnerable. Uh, some have been doing it for decades. They know how to recruit free marketing and labor. And if they've led cults, they know the push and pull of contagious terror and love that firms up trauma bonds. They know that emotions are more powerful than data. They know that prayers can be mistaken for bread. And disaster spirituality is just as deceptive as disaster capitalism. They're not helping you rebuild. They're not selling you a lifeline that's purpose-built for the circumstance. They're selling you what they always had for sale, a messianic promise, a charismatic comfort. They're recycling old material and pretending that it can scale up to global service. They're pretending that spiritual inspiration can stand in for epidemiology. They're pretending that personal certainty can outshine the hard work of consensus-building medicine. So next week, I'll, unf I'll unfold his philosophy, and I'll do it sympathetically because there's something to it. And I believe that it has a time and a place. And I also agree with him that it lays out a pathway for behaving in the world that can reduce harm. So what's the problem? Uh, am I just dissing somebody's religion? Um, no, uh, he's not just selling a fanciful or soothing idea. I mean, if he was selling the notion that meditating on compassion will help everyone, that would be great, but he's teaching that his version of reality is the only version in which the virus can be defeated, and he's taking people's time and attention away, and this becomes a, so a form of social proof for his theory when more people join. Now, if you were selling self-regulation, like here's some deep breathing and visualization exercises to help you develop resilience and maintain good cheer, that would be cool. Uh, but his philosophy says something more radical, uh, that what he offers is the only realistic solution to COVID. But I would say that not even that is the main point, because even the most plausible philosophy is not a worthwhile product if it's coming at you from and then trying to attract you into a high demand group. If you click through to Roach's program, that's what's happening. A recruiting pitch to become a group member at your chosen tier, led by a charismatic figure with a dodgy history who has been perfecting his false safe haven for decades. Like I can personally guarantee that the only way this program will help eradicate the virus is if it encourages people to stay the fuck home. Uh, but you really don't need to join a dodgy spiritual group to do that. Thank you for listening to Conspirituality. You can find us on any major podcast player as well as conspirituality.net, where you'll find our YouTube videos, resources, and other fun material. You can also find us on YouTube directly at youtube.com slash conspirituality, on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash conspiritualitypodcast, and finally on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality. If you are interested in supporting us and helping us grow this project 
into something larger, which we are looking to do, we would appreciate it very much. Thank you, everyone, and see you next week.